Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we aim to inspire you, to connect you with like-minded colleagues, to innovate and push you out of your comfort zone, to create robust debate, to encourage lifelong learning, and to empower you to create more impact as a dietitian. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where you're listening. I'm recording this from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to us today. So welcome to our Dietitian Connection podcast. I'm Jane Winter from Dietitian Connection, and I'm an accredited practicing dietitian. And today my guest is Dr. Tim Crow. Tim is an advanced accredited practicing dietitian who spent most of his career in the world of university nutrition teaching and research. He now works chiefly as a freelance health and medical writer and scientific consultant. He's got an active media profile and a really large social media following through his Thinking Nutrition blog and podcast, which I'm sure many, if not all of you are familiar with. One of our very first podcasts at Dietitian Connection back in 2016 was with Tim and we talked to him about thinking nutrition. If you haven't listened to that episode, go back and hear more about Tim's approach to translating the nutrition science into everyday language. So firstly, Tim, welcome to our podcast or welcome back. Uh, Jane, it's, it's always great to be to be chatting with Dietitian Connection and yourself as well. I actually didn't realise I did that back in 2016, which was a, a bit of a, a fork in the road for my career as well. So it's nice to give some updated perspective on what's happening in the world of nutrition and nutrition communication. Yeah, well, I suspect some things have changed and probably some things have not changed um, in that six years um, since you recorded that. Um, and I want to look back and see how or what's evolved. But there's lots of other parts of your career that I'm curious about. Um, and I'm also interested in getting some of your perspectives on, I guess, the state of our profession and where you think we are or perhaps where we should be headed um, into the future um, as dietitians. But for started, I started, I'm just interested, what do you put on forms that ask for your occupation? I have about five or six different titles depending on who I'm giving the information to or what I feel like that day. It can go from dietitian to nutritionist to nutrition scientist, nutrition researcher, science communicator. They all fit the bill and it sort of describes how I see myself in my career at the moment because I'm now working as a freelance health and medical writer in my own business. So I choose what label I want rather than the previous label I've had most of my career being nutrition academic, you know, lecturer, associate professor and, and whatnot, which is a nice little title, a nice little box to put yourself in. But now it's whatever I'm doing on the day and whatever sort of work um, that I'm doing in that moment or who my audience is, is as well. So all those titles work for me. The common theme is nutrition and research. And with that, that is my bias in all of my communication. It's about the, the science and evidence behind um, our nutrition recommendations. Yeah, and we'll get on to what that evidence means a bit later. But for those who might not know of your sort of career path, can you give us a quick overview of how and why dietetics? So I, I began as a science scientist. I, I did a Bachelor of Science and I thought, this is pretty good. I might go on and do honours. And then honours was pretty good, so I went and did a PhD in molecular biology, of all things. So in a, in a lab doing basic research, 
playing with genes and bacteria and so on. But over that year, next year or two after my PhD, I found myself more interested in reading papers about nutrition and sports performance, nutrition and disease. I really enjoyed that sort of stuff. And I wasn't as excited by the, the sort of work I was doing at the moment, which was looking at various genes involved in um, matrix breakdown and how cancer cells spread around the body, which is fascinating research, but I was interested in the applied stuff. So, so, was, that, so was that your PhD topic? Uh, my, it was related to it. Yeah, it was right. in, in can, using cancer cells. Yes. So it was mainly endocrinology focused. And at the time, I happened to be at University of Sydney. So, And I was reading more about nutrition of what sort of career options there are. And this word dietetics kept coming up, which I knew a bit about. So I just did what anyone did. I wandered across to RPA one day and just met met, met the senior uh, the deputy manager of the dietetics department to learn a bit more about it so literally so just knocked on the door of the dietetics department pretty much turned up <laughs> found out a bit more and then i thought great i think i might plan to do this course next year because sydney uni had a master's and this was in march went and inquired about the course um and margaret allman was the person i spoke yep. to at the time and expressing keenness in doing it for next year because it was March. I got a phone call a day later from us saying, look, if you want a spot in the course, you can start tomorrow. Uh, they had a space available and they didn't get too many PhDs wandering in who mm. <laughs> keen to do dietetics. So there I was. Next thing I don't, found myself in this course and I haven't looked back. It's been wonderful. I've really enjoyed nutrition. Um, worked as a clinical dietitian for a year, which was great, but it was the university and research that drew me back. So that was a great grounding to have the dietetics degree for what everything I've done after that. But a PhD is a PhD. The skills you have in that are fully transferable. Yeah, so and I think, I think that's, um, I always feel like I never did honours after I finished a science degree. And at, in those days, it was, there was really not much in the way of applied sort of research. It was all lab-based. And I could have done honours and I just thought, oh, there's nothing worse. I couldn't think of anything worse than going on and doing honours. Um, and so sort of went straight to dietetics. But I so regretted that um, when it got to the end of dietetics, I really wish that I had developed a better grounding in research. And I guess, you know, if I'm advising anyone who's looking at that now I think it's definitely worth it I mean I managed to find my path to research eventually but that's right you got into that PhD eventually I did but an honours degree I think would have been really handy um so I think research shouldn't just be dismissed out of hand because people go nah it's just it's not me and, and there are so many areas of applied research now and qualitative and you know if a lab doesn't suit you so you know it is a great grounding and obviously the dietetics mm -hmm. faculty could see that when they you know let you in um with a phd sort of straight away yeah so that, so that, that was all in sydney yeah that was all in sydney and then after that i the draw of melbourne uh, got me back here and i worked a bit at the austin and then at peter mack which i absolutely loved oncology was the area of di clinical dietetics i loved the most but the problem was it was the only area that i really loved and then eventually on at deakin university in 2001 and I was there for 16 years, working yeah. my way up through the academic ranks, yeah. And, and Tim, I remember you walking in, the fresh-faced That's kid, right. You know? <laughs> you're the coordinator of dietetics, and there I was, the new, new grad teaching nutritional biochemistry and physiology, just learning on the job, learning you only have to be one lecture in front of your students, and that's all, that's all you need to do, <laughs> and then yeah. you take it from there. But um, the students loved you. And then, so then 16 years, that's obviously a long time. You were doing really well in the academic world, you know, progressing up that career path of academia, but then decided or started thinking about launching Thinking Nutrition. I assume that that started, you started thinking about that while you were still 
at Deakin. That's How right. How did that Jennifer, come about? For many years, I, I just started doing social media. I just started up a Facebook page and started a blog, just not knowing where it would take me, but I enjoyed just the communication through that. I was doing a lot of media, like every every couple of days to be another media interview because the media loved to have the, the nerdy academic with the bookcase behind them to give comment for a story. And then doing some a lot of writing work outside of university. So I kept waiting for this job to appear on Seek one day. That would be all the things I love doing, you know, nutrition, communication, and translational research, but it never appeared. And then literally out of nowhere, it, it occurred to me that, well, I could make my own job. And that was the moment that I decided it's time for the career change to go into what I, I really enjoy doing at the time, which was nutrition communication. So I finished the at Deakin, um, started my job as my own boss, as a sole trader under the business name of Thinking Nutrition. I just kept doing what I was doing on my social media and then a lot of consulting work and health professional education as well. But it's been, uh, it's been wonderful. That was five years ago. And uh, it's been a, a really good journey in that time. So when we last spoke, I would have just still been at near the end of my career at yeah, Deakin. I think so. Most likely, probably ready to make the transition into but it. But that's, that's a pretty big and bold jump to go from a tenured, paid position with all the benefits you get of permanent yeah. employment um, to freelancing, um, essentially. Was, was that pretty scary? It was the, the, the day it was not the, the department was notified. I had a lot of colleagues come in and just wish me well. And quite a few of them sat there in my office and said, I wish I could do what you were doing. But they couldn't because they needed that job security with the family, mortgage, all of those sorts of things. I didn't do it cold. I had been building up a work profile for some years and I knew that there was enough work out there for me that you know I'd be able to put food on the table. So that has never been a problem. I've been quite fortunate, but I didn't get there because I just quit my job and built my own business. I'd been doing a lot of the hard work without realizing over the years, building up Thinking Nutrition brand, uh, my professional network, my social media presence, all of that was in place ready for me to make the jump. Yeah. And that, yeah, that's so a big difference. Yeah, yeah. It's that preparation that, yeah. that goes into it. Just out of interest, do you think that seek job actually exists anywhere now or still do you think that doesn't exist? That's no, You have to it make doesn't. it yourself. You have to make it yourself. If, if you want to do all the things that most of the things that interest you, you probably need to do it yourself, unless you're very focused on one particular area. Like if you want to just work with oncology patients, well, clearly the job is on seek for you because it will be a clinical dietitian at Peter Mack or some of those places. But if you like a, a lot of diversity in your work, it maybe you need to be your own boss and make your own job, but that has a lot of downsides and that's not for everybody. You know, there are downsides to being a freelancer and a sole trader and and there are downsides to being in a salary position. So it, the grass isn't always greener, but it may yeah. get to a stage in anyone's career that they see that's the next logical step for them to do it. I mean, for many dietitians listening to this, they'll be in private practice and that is being your own boss. Um, as long as you've got regular clients coming through, then you've got an income, but you've got variability in how you do that work, but it's more of a fixed focus. It's then doing things outside of that to supplement your income and supplement your interest that you need to, to foster. Yeah. And I guess thinking about job security in the past two years and the whole COVID pandemic um, time that we've been going through, job security hasn't necessarily been so secure over the past two years. No. Has it impacted you much in terms of um, just your work or your clients um, in your own business? Like has, yeah. has that actually been beneficial that you've been able to maintain 
um, your business through that time? So the first few months of the pandemic, it was everything got turned upside down. All the stuff I had scheduled in my diary for conferences and things all got mm. cancelled. But very quickly, within a few months, everybody adapted to going online. I mean, I was used to using Zoom and these sorts of things, but they were foreign technology for most people. Now, every you know, we all use this sort of technology. So there's very little that I had done before the pandemic that hasn't um, translated very well to doing online, but it's nice now. I've got a few in-person conference presentations mm-hmm. to look forward to, which I actually am looking forward to getting up on a stage and speaking to a group again. So that's nice to have, but it's good that you've got this hybrid model where a lot of stuff can be done online, but it's nice to have the option of doing stuff in person. So from a business perspective, online is, is very efficient use of your time. You just yeah. turn up, put on a put on a nice shirt and turn on the camera, off you go, and then turn it off and back to what you were doing after that. So it's it's great for the efficiencies. The negative, of course, is when you work for yourself, you do need you know, additional professional contact with human beings. So you have to find ways to incorporate that if a lot of this work you do is online. Yeah, it's been it's been a spectacular um, turnaround, hasn't it? Like things that for so long we'd say, oh, I can't do that, it's too hard, you know, we're just, we can never pivot to that. And I mean, pivot's a word that I don't think I've ever heard. <laughs> I, I avoided using that word, Jane. Yeah, sorry. Mind, but I stopped myself. <laughs> slipped in. Um, but it's been spectacular how quickly people have had to just change their thinking and change their way of doing stuff. Um, and we all have, whether we've liked it or not, you've adapted it's incredible so getting back to sort of I guess as you've pointed out one of your key strengths and and backbone to your business is that translation of nutrition research and the nerdy stuff as you call it into uh, communications that the general public and healthcare professionals who might not be nutrition experts can understand Uh, so with that communication over the past six years since you've been doing this full-time, have you seen changes in the way people consume that information or have you had to change your approach in delivering that information at all? What, what changes have you seen? Yeah, there has been a big a big shift. Increasingly, it's, it's towards social media and mm. it's evolved a lot in the last five or six years. So we have different platforms that, that people are accessing. You know, back, back in the old day, it was just about straight form blogs and a bit of Facebook. Now there's a lot of stuff being done with, with video. And of course, you know, TikTok was just a bit of a gimmick when it started, as mm. most platforms are, but it's it's becoming a bit of a serious communication channel as well. So and seeing more dietitians getting involved with this and doing really good work, getting big following and being quite creative in how they communicate their messages and their particular um, brand in, in terms of what how they want to do things. So I'm seeing a lot more activity in there and a lot more diversity in terms of how people approach their their work as a professional on social media. So that's been a a really big shift. The media has been a negative that increasingly media stories are driven by what's happening on social media and a lot of the hype that goes in there. Uh, getting lazy journalists who just get social media to drive their story with all the vox pops, that's the personal opinions and things. So that can be then, you know, generate a whole story. That's great for clicks, but it's not always good for a, a clear, consistent, credible message. But that's been the biggest shift, adapting. And podcasts, which have grown exponentially over the last few years. I'm so glad I got into them two years ago. For me, that's my main communication channel because it's the one of the few channels where you have full 100% control over it. You're not going to have algorithms 
that can downplay mm. your page because they want you to pay for advertising. With a podcasting, it is direct to your audience. They choose to subscribe. And once they're there, you know, they can always unsubscribe, but you, you're not going to lose them. Whereas you can lose them. If you're on YouTube, YouTube could shut down your channel any day. Facebook, uh, you have, have 46,000 followers, would get thousands of engagements per post. It's almost tumbleweeds going through Facebook now because unless you pay them, they're not going to promote any of your posts. Oh, so that's really? been really a big, a big shift for me. So I still use Facebook, but I, I moved to Instagram, my blog, but pretty much my podcast is my best channel now. It sort of suits how I want to communicate. And that's only been two years. Uh, for podcasting, yeah, yes, I began it in January, January 2020, just before the pandemic started. Right. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I thought it had been been going longer than that. And so, um, you were saying that you've just kind of got much more active on Instagram. Yeah, I always thought I can't, I can't do Instagram. It doesn't work for how I communicate. But we adapt, and I found ways to make it work, you know, putting some nice little infographics, you know, a little bit of nerdy science in there, but I've found it's a medium that can work quite well if you're prepared to change how you communicate rather than just stick into one format that communication has to be long form blog posts with lots of pictures and graphs in them. Instagram can do that pretty well. So and you'll so, just see me doing, you know, um, comical dances and things like that. <laughs> well, that that's, my- that's not me. I'm, I'm great. The people that do it, they entertain me, but that's not how I do it. But I just need to make use of a platform. So for those listening, whether it's video, whether it's TikTok, YouTube, podcasting, long form writing, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, you can have to adapt your message for that platform, but also the platform has to be suitable for your audience. So a very different audience on TikTok versus Facebook. They're probably extremes now nowadays yeah. really polarizing so you don't think tiktok will be something you'll be embarking on anytime soon never say never i almost no. had a colleague convince me that maybe i should give it another look but we'll see we'll see <laughs> i'm quite happy with podcasting at the moment <laughs> yeah yeah and so what what um when you've you've made the transition from full-time academic into a full-time freelancer uh communicator in nutrition you know, are there any sort of really big challenges that you feel like you've had to overcome in that journey or, or things that sort of unexpected barriers? Surprisingly, it's actually gone quite quite well. It's been new skills I've had to learn, you know, the idea of tendering and putting proposals and, and just working on the relationships with clients. So I have you know, many, many, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of clients that I've worked with over the years. So just that Building up that 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 engagement and also how you make sure you deliver what the client is after for the sort of work that you're doing. So overall, it's been a good learning experience, but it's the diversity of things that I've got to do that I've really enjoyed. And I like the fact that any day an email could come through and it could be some really different sort of work that I hadn't considered before. So lots of interesting opportunities. So, Tim, you mentioned that you do work with uh, industry and work with companies um, in translating um, nutrition research uh, into communications. I think that's that's an interesting path to go. And with Thinking Nutrition, you've maintained a very independent voice in terms of how you communicate that science um, to consumers or other healthcare professionals. How do you balance that working for industry or working for a company and in, in being commissioned to do some work for them versus maintaining an independent voice in terms of communicating research? 
So, Jane, that's a really great question because it, the reality is that that when you have clients and you're working with industry, you are never 100% independent. And every every professional, every dietitian that does this work has to come up with a line that they're comfortable with. So I'm never 100% independent, but I try and maintain, be as independent as I can. So for me, the, 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 I have a line that I won't go past. You'll never see me ever endorsing products or being an advertisement or so on. But if it, that is not to say that anyone can't do that. That's good, good luck if they want to do that. But for me, I don't want to go down that pathway to be too closely linked with a particular product or brand. Most of the work I do is back-end. It's more scientific advice that for my clients, they can take that advice or not. So that's what I'm actually generally being employed to do is to give scientific consulting advice to, for, you know, for the company to make use of. So for me, that's one thing I'm, I'm comfortable with doing. Uh, in my front-facing work with the media on my social media platforms, you'll never see any, any of that leaking across in things that I post. It's always about you know, the sorts of things that interest me that are topical at the particular time. So I've just had to find a line that I'm comfortable with that works for me to maintain be as independent as possible, acknowledging that you can never be truly 100% you know, independent. But this is, this is where I'm going to do, be going. A lot of my work, though, is not linked with um, companies anymore. It's generally outside of that space, which actually removes a lot of conflict, which is quite nice. A lot of health professional education work, a lot of writing for you know general health and wellbeing websites. Yeah. So that for me, that's that's you know perfect work. That's great work to be doing. You don't have to balance the conflict of interest as much if you're writing for a a magazine or a health site or so on. Yeah, yeah, it, because it is a, it's a tricky line to walk. Um, that and and there's certainly you know valid reasons for dietitians working with industry and they of can course. improve their offerings and Most they can definitely. really have a positive effect in in product development or any of those sorts of things. Um, but you do risk being seen as the voice of that company and losing all of your other professional sort of credibility. So it, it, it can be a, a tricky path um, for That's very particularly true. young dietitians to walk, I think. And that's really true because credibility can take a career to build up, but you could lose it quite quickly in in the the public's eye. So for me, I won't be out there in front of a company or a brand. You know, I'll say always say no to the work, that work. If I said yes, I could get some very lucrative checks if I wanted them. But mm. I've chosen that I need to maintain a level of perceived independence and credibility so that I can do other work. So you actually create additional work when you don't do that. But if you, you do do that, you can do it really well. So it's no right or wrong way. It's my opening remarks. You have to find a line that you're comfortable with. And for me, here's the line I'm comfortable with. Yeah. Yeah. And if we if we move on to thinking about the profession of dietetics, and I feel like sometimes as dietitians, we can be our own worst enemies a little bit. And we all as a profession talk about being evidence-based and you know, it's we try and differentiate from sort of non- um, professional nutrition experts, mm. so-called experts, uh, by saying that we're evidence-based. But the problem is evidence doesn't necessarily need to be interpreted in one way. And there's a lot of different interpretations of the evidence. And so how do we make ourselves stand out as nutrition experts when there might be disagreements in our philosophies? And, and what comes to mind is some 
things straight away is like um, different approaches to weight management, mm. a dieting versus yeah. a non-dieting approach or a low versus high carb approach to diabetes. And we might understand those nuances as dietitians, but yeah. it looks very contradictory to the general public. So, yes. you know, where do you think we should be trying? How do we manage this? So many, many years ago, I was one of those people that's all about the evidence and because I've got a meta-analysis and a review, this is the way it is. And, and these other viewpoints aren't correct because that they don't have the evidence. So that is our training. But you're very correct. A lot of the evidence in nutrition is, is pretty average. And that's not disparaging the research because it's bloody hard to do yes. long-term randomized controlled trials of all sorts of factors. We have to make the best of what we've got. But acknowledging that evidence is not always the best quality. And it does change over time. But also in every randomized control trial you look at, even if it's the most perfect trial, there are individuals in that study that contributed to the deviation around whatever the mean was. Yeah. So there's people that did well, not so well. And when you appreciate that at an individual level, there is validity to different approaches. You know, we're all human beings. Just based upon your gut microbiome, your blood sugar response to an apple could be different to somebody else's. So there is true validity that personalization, individual, um, how food affects an individual is a very real thing. So therefore, if you acknowledge that, we have to acknowledge that the research base for that person may need a different approach. So yeah, low carb many years ago, I was very negative on, on aspects of it. But as the research has emerged, I think it has a good role to play in diabetes management as one option. Um, Look, you can lose weight on it, but long-term, it's not very good, just like any other diet. So rather than being negative on a different viewpoint, acknowledging, well, is this approach going to work for a person? And in the end, is it going to mean that their health will be better for it? So if they're eating a pretty rubbish Western-style diet and they start going on a, on a, a fatty diet, rather than being negative on the fat diet, does it mean they're actually eating better and concentrating a bit more on healthy eating? If the answer is yes, we, we can support that approach, Knowing that in six months' time, no one is going keto anymore. They, they start reverting back to their normal diet. So rather than fight the fads, <laughs> fight the people with not who are not being evidence-based and cherry-picking, roll with it and use it to your own advantage of how you can then communicate credibly. So being negative has its place, but also being positive and reinforcing positive dietary changes also can be a good thing at an individual level. And with the evidence, be humble that... We're evidence-based, but the evidence is not always the best, meaning there's room for different interpretations, and some of those interpretations do have some validity. And I guess with it depends on where your role in communication is. So if you're a private practice dietitian who's dealing yes. with one patient, Correct. then you can easily adapt that messaging and not be too concrete and say the evidence says this and therefore what you're doing is wrong and yes. understand exactly as you point out that there are deviations in that research group and yes. some respond and some don't respond. And, and possibly the challenge is a bit more if you're a dietitian who's uh, giving your viewpoint in a media uh, yes. where you're trying to give something a bit much broader that's applicable to individuals. And I guess that's where the yep. challenge is. That That's the challenge and how I've approached it over the years is that whatever I'm speaking about, I try and find at least some positive, even if overall it's a negative thing you're chatting about, what is some positive about this? And then a negative or a disclaimer to add to that. Because if you just be negative all the time, uh, that can certainly turn people off. Yeah, so I remember going to a conference years ago, years and years ago, and the keynote speaker, um, who was a dietitian, 
um, got up and said, we have to change our reputation as away from agents of deprivation. Yes. <laughs> that is such a great catchphrase of what dietitians were seen as. Absolutely. If you, not, I don't suggest you do it very often because it can be bad for your mental health, but if there's a, a semi-controversial nutrition story about a latest fad or something, and they're having some, you know, credible, sensible, a professional, a dietitian speaking, but if they're being a bit negative, just look at the comments on that article and it will be all, let's bash the dietitian because they're being the food police or the fun police mm-hmm. telling us, don't do this, don't do that. So you can still do that to an extent, but it's good to focus on a positive message as well to get people on board. Yeah. And do you have any, any um, other you know, words of wisdom for in, the, in our profession of dietetics, like how dietitians can improve their standing in the nutrition space? Yeah, so I would say that we still, as a profession, we are, we are evidence-based. It's based on what the current research says. doesn't mean we ignore that just because I've said some negative things about it. Which that we want to see too. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm not saying for a moment you just ignore that and make your own stuff up. So you still have that as your base, but you can acknowledge some of those limitations and acknowledge some level of um, personal variability in how you communicate to larger audiences. And having more of a positive tone in your communication can work better. And also finding what your niche, your space is. Because in the end, a lot of what we talk about to the general public is eat more fruits and vegetables and less junk food. That's, there's a dietetics degree. But we have wonderful things now to dress that up. We can start talking about the gut microbiome. Get on all of these sorts of things and use that to actually massage your message. That's what the people want to hear about, the latest trends and fads. I'm not calling gut microbiome a fad, but it is certainly uh, you know, up there as far as a hot topic. How can you use that to your advantage? You know, if people are going on some latest new crad, uh, crazy fad diet, can you turn that to your advantage in getting back to what you want to communicate without being overtly negative on it? And there's ways you can turn that around, focus on the positive aspects and then bring in a bit of other things just to make it a bit more exciting rather than talking about fiber in your bowel habits because that's a bit boring. But you can do that like re- Yeah, <laughs> and it is reassuring though that the message or the... The take-home message really hasn't changed. Eat more fruit and vegetables, less processed foods. Like that time immemorial, that's been a good health message. And that's still what we're saying. But, yes, now we've got the gut microbiome to talk about. Now we've got reducing risk of dementia to talk about. Now we've got so many other aspects. So many different things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, The the fundamentals of nutrition over decades, to me, we're talking for a broad, healthy dietary pattern for the general population, has not changed. No. It's only the crazy people saying, ah, well, we're living in the past. It's all about keto or going on this sort of diet now. You've got to keep up with the research. That's rubbish. That hasn't changed. A fundamental healthy diet is well supported by a load of evidence. It's really the noise around the edges that we can play in if we choose to, for some people, different approaches might work. But the core fundamentals to me have never changed. And I think, as you say, if you're doing talking to media, even if it's just, you know, talking to a local paper or, or something like that, explaining how your message has come from the evidence and those sort of disclaimers around, well, there's always issues, helps explain to people why there are changes in advice over time because evidence does change and evolve and oh. And so we do see these changes and, may, and maybe that helps explain, oh, you dietitians, yesterday you told us this was good for us, today you're telling us it's bad for us, you know? I mean, it astounds me people even say that every other, of, every other area of science does exactly the same thing. It, it evolves. People's views of things change. You know, pick any scientific field, be it from um, quantum physics to nutrition, 
it changes mm. and evolves. But in nutrition, it's a bad thing that you said something a few years ago. To me, it's a good thing that you've changed your view because the evidence has changed. Thank God we are still not we're not still talking about low fat. And I'm glad we've left that behind. Yes. It has an appropriate time for a particular client, but for you know overall public health message, yeah, that was probably not a a good thing. How it was interpreted by the public, not not the messages, so so to speak. So it's good that we move on. And it's good that, that we have more research to support a lot of the things we say, but the fundamentals of our message of the broad dietary guidelines have not changed very no. little at all. It's only the people with a, a book they want to sell on Amazon and get lots of clicks <laughs> that make the noise about overselling whatever latest fad they're promoting. Yeah, yeah. So if we, we take a, a big picture look at our profession um, do you have any sort of hopes of how you see the profession of dietetics evolving into the future? I've got lots of positives for the for the, the the profession of dietetics because of just evolving research, and we have so much access now to that research and professional development in it that dietitians are going to be better and better informed. There are some wonderful dietitians with huge followings all throughout social media doing great stuff, and I'm just the biggest advocate. Of, of anyone making a start and just getting themselves out there, getting a professional presence, be it on Facebook to TikTok to wherever, just doing good work that suits you and how you want to communicate. Um, for God, you know, don't be a nerd like me the way I communicate, but that works for me. There's other ways of doing it. So getting more of us involved in this particular area is a really positive thing for our profession. So I'm, I love seeing more of that happening. Oh, that's great, Tim. And it's been really lovely to chat to you and hear your perspectives today. And I think so many dietitians are getting into or learning about the sort of social media path of communication. Um, it's really good for them to, to hear from someone who's trodden that path before and, and found a way it works for you. And hopefully our listeners can, can find a way it works for them um, as well. So I really enjoyed our chat today, Tim. Thanks for your time. Great chatting with you, Joan. If you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review and a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. Tell us what you thought of this episode, what you learnt, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We value hearing from you and we really appreciate your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.